0: The first reading from the Old Testament, Isaiah 58, verses 1 through 12, pages 674 and 675. Shout out, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Announce to my people their rebellion, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet day after day they seek me, in delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that practiced righteousness. It did not forsake the ordinance of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why do we fast, but you do not see? Why humble ourselves, but you do not notice? Look, you serve your own interest on your fast day and oppress all your workers. Look, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to strike with a wicked fist. Such fasting as you do today will not make your voice heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose? A day to humble oneself. Is it to bow down the head like a bulrush and to lie in a sackcloth and ashes? Will you call this a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord?
1: Is it not the fast that I choose to lose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, to bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover them and not to hide yourself from your own kin? Then your light shall break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up quickly. Your vindicator shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry for help, and he will say, here I am. If you remove the yoke from among you, the pointing of the finger, the speaking of evil, if you offer your food to the hungry and satisfy the needs of the afflicted, then your light shall rise in the darkness, and your gloom will be like the noonday. The Lord will guide you continually, and satisfy your needs in parched places and make your bones strong and you shall be like a watered garden like a spring of water whose waters never fail your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt you shall rise up the foundations of many generations and you shall be called to the repair of the breach the restorer of the streets to live in if you refrain from the trampling of the Sabbath, from pursuing your own interests on my holy day. If you call the Sabbath a delight in the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it not going your own ways, serving your own interests, or pursuing your own affairs, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and and I will make you ride upon the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of your ancestors, Ancestor Jacob, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Thanks be to God.
2: Thank you, gentlemen. And our New Testament lesson this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, uh, the fifth chapter, uh, verses 13 through 20. This text occurs immediately after. Um, the Beatitudes, where Jesus has preached about uh, the blessedness of those who are meek and merciful and pure in heart. So listen now for the word of God to the church from Matthew 5. These are the words of Christ. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything, but is thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it under the bushel basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom Of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So last week I preached a sermon on the sixth chapter of Micah where the prophet reminds us that what God really wants from us is to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with our God. And as I greeted people out on the porch after those services, more than one churchgoer expressed relief because they Uh, saw my sermon title. And when they saw that title, which was Trial, Judgment, and Hope, they were a little nervous and worried that I was going to preach about another certain trial that was happening in a certain place called Washington uh, at the very same time. Now, Even though such a sermon, a sermon on that topic, was not what God put on my heart to preach that Sunday, I'm really not sure that we got off the hook altogether since my sermon was about God being so angry with humanity... Uh, that God put us all on trial for our long rap sheet of sins. So that actually seems a lot more terrifying to me uh, than a pastor daring to suggest that the Bible might actually have something to say about the political realities of our world. But now that I've made you all really squirmy, even more than last week, I have to say I can't really argue with the sense of relief. And I say that for two reasons. I know. (laughs) I know. Once, Number one, in my experience, sermons that get kind of too directly political tend to end up as just shipwrecks uh, in which the divine biblical message is shattered on the rocks of political entrenchment and then drowned in a stormy sea of political expectation. Number two... When people hear sermons like that, they often feel like the preacher's words are really doing nothing more than rubbing salt in personal wounds. So, interestingly, those two images, the shipwreck and salt, did rise up this week in this week's scripture from the Sermon on the Mount. It is as if Jesus knew, right after he praised the meek at the expense of the powerful, when he lifted up the poor vis-a-vis the rich when he celebrated the peacemaker over the boastful victor, that if his followers dared to ever really accept those truths, and not only that, if they dared to proclaim them boldly to the world, that the seas would get pretty stormy and dangerous for those disciples, and that the world may likely lash out when those truths were rubbed into the raw wounds of life. Jesus knew, that his gospel would challenge entrenched ideas and entrenched people, and that his disciples would therefore need strength and courage and inspiration if they were going to endure the inevitable backlash of bearing public witness to that gospel. So let's look at salt first. You are the salt of the earth, Jesus says. As I've already kind of explained to the kids, in many ways it's a flattering comparison for the disciples of Christ to be likened to salt. It's essential to life. It's it's been, through history, one of the most sought-after products. It is said to have more than 14,000 uses. We need look no farther than the Jeeps and the pickup trucks around us to be reminded that the salt life is good. (laughs) At the same time, salt is somewhat ironically the combination of sodium and chlorine, which happen to be two of the deadliest chemicals known to man. Sodium is an unstable metal that explodes into flame if exposed to air or water. At least that's what the internet says. Uh, And chlorine is a toxic gas that can kill. But when these two kind of dangerous, unstable elements come together and form the ionic compound, NACL, their toxic qualities are transformed into something much more meek, much more mild, that promotes health and happiness and gives flavor to life. So perhaps salt is exactly what we need in the polarized and dangerous political environment in which we live today. There is explosive anger and toxicity in all kinds of camps, and the separation between these groups seems only to be widening. So when Jesus calls us to be salt of the earth, Jesus seems to be calling us into the fray, not to crush one side of the other or to declare victory over one side, but instead to bring people together. And there's a warning in Jesus' words as well. You're the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything, but is thrown out and trampled underfoot. So if we do not act like salt, if we shy away from the tough conversations because we'd rather avoid the pain of them, if we choose to keep our heads down and refuse to say the things that need to be said, then we fail to be authentic And we fail to grasp the most important part of our calling, which is to bear witness not to the wisdom of this world, but to the gospel of the risen Christ. And regarding this type of failure, Jesus does not mince words. When we fail to be salt, he says, we are no longer good for anything. We are like refuse, which might as well be tossed out the kitchen window, out into the dust of the road to be trampled underfoot as the world passes by. So maybe we should not be so worried about rubbing salt in the wounds of the world, because that is what God actually wants us to do. Not so that we would simply cause pain with anger or malice, but so that we might bring hope so that we might create conditions in which God's healing can occur. That second image, that image of the shipwreck, does not appear directly in the text, but it does or it may come to mind for many of us Americans when we read that Jesus calls us not only to be salt but to be a city on a hill. A city built on a hill cannot be hid, Jesus says. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it under a bushel, but instead puts it up on uh, the lampstand. In the same way, let your light shine before others. Once again, Jesus is pushing his disciples not to be fearful about what may happen to them when they bear witness to the gospel, but rather to be bold and courageous examples of God's truth, God's priorities, the things that God truly says, are blessed. This image of a city on a hill, though, has been a common metaphor in po- American political history. Many of us know that. A number of presidents have used it to shape their visions of what our nation should be. And most of these references, I think it's pretty clear, are based on a well known speech made by Puritan lawyer John Winthrop in 1630. It was actually more of a sermon than a speech, and it had a whole lot more to do with Jesus and the prophet Micah than it had to do with politics. Winthrop delivered his sermon from the pulpit of Holyrood Church in Southampton, England, and the gathered congregation was predominantly comprised of the Puritans who would, just a few short weeks later, join John Winthrop on the ship Arbella, bound for the portion of the New World now known as Massachusetts. And while we might tend to hear Winthrop's reference to a city on a hill and think that it points to a kind of boasting or a kind of exceptionalism, the idea that their new colony would be higher and better uh, and more envied than all the others, if you read the sermon itself, it is much, much more humble than that. Winthrop felt like he and the other colonists were entering into a covenant with God, that they were making a sacred promise to God to live first and foremost as disciples of Christ so that life in their new home would be marked by generosity, grace, love, and the conviction that if one person suffers, everyone suffers. All of those concepts were actually there in his sermon. And Winthrop thought that if that group failed to live up to those high spiritual standards, if, and I'm using his words now, if they were to embrace this present world and prosecute our carnal intentions, seeking great things for ourselves, the Lord will surely break out against us. And the word he used to describe that kind of spiritual failure was shipwreck. He said if they wanted to avoid that kind of shipwreck right before they boarded this ship to go on this perilous journey, he said that the way to avoid shipwreck would be, and again I'm quoting here, to follow the counsel of Micah, to do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with our God. For this end, he continued, we must be knit together in this work. We must entertain each other and brotherly affection, we must be willing to abridge ourselves for, of our superfluities, our sup, things that are superfluous. We much, must abridge ourselves of our superfluities for the supply of others' necessities. We must uphold a familiar commerce together in all meekness. gentleness, patience and liberality. We must delight in each other. make make others' conditions our own, rejoice together, mourn together, labor and suffer together, always having before our eyes our commission and community in the work as members of the same body so shall we keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. The Lord will be our God and delight to dwell among us as his own people and will command a blessing upon us in all our ways so that we shall see much more of his wisdom, power, goodness, and truth than we formerly have been acquainted with. We shall find that the God of Israel is among us. And here it comes, for we must consider that we shall be As a city upon a hill, the eyes of all people are upon us. So that, if we shall deal falsely with our God in this work we have undertaken, and so cause God to withdraw his present help from us, we shall be made a story and a byword through the world. We shall shame the faces of many of God's worthy servants, and cause their prayers to be turned into curses upon us till we be consumed out of the good land whither we are going. Tough words, and in other words, Winthrop was hardly declaring victory hardly trumpeting about how great this new settlement was going to be or in any way claiming with triumph that whatever they may choose to do in the new world would somehow have God's special blessing. On the contrary, he was humbly warning his people and himself that if they failed to honor God, if they failed to follow Christ, if they didn't live up to these standards of spirituality, if, and I'm using his words Loosely again here, if they were seduced by worldly idols, if they chose to worship and serve their own pleasure, their own profit, then they would not survive long on this new path that God had laid out for him. That was, in Winthrop's mind, what Christ means when Christ calls us to be a city on a hill. Winthrop was not making a political statement. He was making a discipleship statement. That whatever the Puritans did in the new world, whatever may become of them, that they would keep their eyes constantly on Christ, serving him and their neighbors with grace and with love and with the knowledge that many others would be watching them to see what God is really like. As Presbyterians, we profess that there are six great ends of the church. Some of you may remember them. Six things that we are supposed to do as the church. The first five are these. One, the proclamation of the gospel for the salvation of humankind. Number two, the shelter, nurture, and spiritual worship, uh, spiritual fellowship of the children of God. Number three, the maintenance of divine worship. Number four, the preservation of the truth. And number five, the promotion of social righteousness. But I'll confess to you that the sixth has always been the hardest for me because it seems the most daunting. The sixth great end that we seek as the church is the exhibition of the kingdom of heaven to the world. We are called to show the world what heaven is like, what God is like. And we're supposed to not tell them, we're supposed to show them. We're called to be salt, to seek out the wounded places of the world and work for healing because salt doesn't do anything by itself. To be effective, it must be added to something. And we are called to be in our lives together a city on a hill, a people who collectively show the world what God is like. Now, if that high calling is not enough to give us pause, if that is not enough to make us nervous, if that is not enough to make us really, really humble, then I don't know what is. To exhibit the kingdom of God to the world is a hard, hard thing to do. In the movie A League of Their Own, which is about... Professional women's baseball in the World War II era, one of the best players in the league has decided to leave the team and to go home. She is torn between being on the road and playing this game that she loves and then being at home with the man she loves who has come home injured from the war. And the strain of it all has just gotten to be too much. Her manager, who doesn't want to lose his best player, tries to talk her out of it. Baseball is what gets inside of you, he says. It's what lights you up. It just got too hard, she says. And in one of the most memorable lines of the movie, this is, the manager replies, it's supposed to be hard. If it wasn't hard, everyone would do it. The hard is what makes it great. And let's face it, it's hard to be gentle in a world that's angry and violent, it's hard to be a, pace, a peacemaker in the midst of conflict. It's hard to be merciful in a world that rarely shows mercy. It's hard to stand up and speak for justice when we are worried about what people may say or do if we do. It's hard to stay open and make ourselves vulnerable. It's hard to remain humble about things that we passionately believe to be true so that we might create space for grace and dialogue even with people whom we might call enemies. It is hard, and Jesus knows that it's hard. But the hard is what makes it great. The hard is what can truly make us the salt of the world, can truly lift us up to be a city on the hill, that can truly make us into a community of bold witnesses that truly is an exhibition of the kingdom of heaven to the world. May God bless us in that calling. Amen and amen.